You are listening to The Broken Up. The Broken Up. The podcast. The podcast. The podcast. You're listening to The Broken Up, the podcast where we explore bands that are gone. And today I'm here with Doc, a good friend of mine uh, who agreed to talk about his band, Red Carpet Rats. So uh, I don't actually know much about this band. I know it's kind of what you've told me, you know, here and there. So can you just give me, you know, sort of the, the who, what, where, when and where, you know me, and start with when. When did this happen, both in time and in your life? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I had just gotten off a tour with a variety band. We did six months in Korea mm-hmm. playing country and dance and classic rock music. And I'd gotten off that and I thought, what next? You know, mm-hmm. I was working in a music store doing electronic repairs. And I uh, started, you know, combing ads and putting out my feelers for, for the next thing, which I'd started doing before I even came back from Korea. And uh, these guys got in touch with me, a couple of songwriters and a drummer that had been doing uh, uh, been working together for a year or better about a year or so mm-hmm. and they were looking for a bass player and they've auditioned you know hundreds of bass players or whatever uh, invited me to come up and, and actually really challenged me you know you're gonna love it it's this great it was a Donald Trump pitch mm-hmm. right? yeah uh-huh. it's the greatest thing ever you know um, <laughs> And uh, so I flew up. Uh, I loved what they were doing. These three guys were extremely determined and hardworking. And I said, well, if I'm ever going to do this, you know, and get it done, it's going to be with these guys. And so you you, you, by that, you mean like make it, like yes, become a rock star. I become successful. Yeah. I, I didn't have visions of becoming a rock star. They did. They really did. That mm-hmm. was foremost in their mind to be stars. I just wanted to, uh, you know, looking to support myself financially playing rock music. Mm-hmm. And the bigger, the better. But, uh, you know, it's not important for me to be on the cover of Bass Player Magazine or whatever, which <laughs> yeah. would be a ludicrous thing. Well, you're a very good bass player, so who knows? Uh, the, yes, who knows? Thank you. But so, so up until this point, I mean, you know, you'd been pursuing music, I guess, as a career, right? Yeah, well, um, you know, as I've been working in music stores for seven or eight years mm-hmm. and the whole time playing in bands alongside that and it was always more important the band was always more important you yeah. know than doing electronic repairs but in a music store i get to be surrounded by musicians all the time and i get to make great contacts and i get to learn about all kinds of different uh, forms of music and i got to be surrounded by gear all the time which yeah. can get old you well, know, but when you get so to finger all the new pieces of gear and work on them, and you know, it's very uh, tactile fun. You yeah. know, so you're uh, you're out on this tour in the South Asian Pacific. Yes. Okay, and uh, you come back. When about is this? Let's see. This would have been about ninety. No, this would have been two thousand. Two thousand. Yes. Okay, and and you're about uh, two thousand. I was. Uh, gosh, what was I in two thousand thirty? 30. Okay. So you're 30 years old. You're coming off of this sort of party tour that was financially... Oh, it was good. Yeah? Not bad at all. Yeah. Yeah. You're now looking for the next gig. That thing's not on your horizon. And you're meeting up with three determined strangers mm-hmm. that you've just met through networking. Yeah. You tr- you moved to be with these guys or they were... Yes. No, th- I was in Charlotte. They were mm-hmm. in Nashville. Okay. So I uh, flew to Nashville, met them, mm-hmm. came home, got all my ducks in a row, and then a month later I moved to Nashville with everything I owned and wow. uh, lived there for the next 12 years. 12 years playing with these guys? Yes. Wow. So, I mean, that was a real go at it. Yeah. I think so. So you, you, you relocate, mm-hmm. you know, you meet these guys and spend the next 12 years of your life trying to, to become successful musicians financially uh, and you've moved to Nashville, which, you know, coming from the West Coast, I've always thought of Nashville as like, oh, it's just honky-tonk, country music. And it's all of that. Uh, but there's there's also other things mm-hmm. in Nashville as well, but mostly it's a whole lot of that and the Hollywood golden syrup touched up pop country, you know, mm-hmm. and Christian music as well. But yep. the thing is, anything that you can do in LA, you can do in Nashville 10 times cheaper, yep. right? Cost of living is in the basement. The, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you need producers, you need lawyers, managers, somebody put the tour together for you, publicists. They have all that in Nashville yep. and you can get it a lot cheaper than you can in, in LA. So, so you get to know these guys. Mm-hmm. More than names, by the way. Well, we usually call them by their last names because okay. it's just a habit, yep. you know. Pereira, McCabe, and Bukino. 
And, and what do they play? Uh, Bikino's drums, mm-hmm. uh, Pereira sings, plays a little guitar, and uh, McCabe guitar. Okay. And we all did, you know, we all sang harmony. Who was the lead singer? Pereira. Pereira was just singing, or he was also... He played some guitar. Okay, got it. So, you know, I've listened to your music. I'll, I'll play some in just a little bit, but, I mean, describe, like, at the time when mm. somebody asked you what kind of music it was, what did you say? Uh, we were glam rock. When we first started yeah. out, we were called Franz Mantra, mm-hmm. um, which is a name that was uh, uh, conceived by Pereira. He and McCabe had a friend who was a, an engineer mm-hmm. who really inspired them and pushed them and said, guys, you really have something. Go go mm-hmm. make it, you know, yeah. make it be. We wore, uh, you know, all kinds of very glamorous um a lot, a lot of women's clothes and sequins and bell bottoms mm-hmm. and uh, what do you call uh, fishnets? Yes, fishnet. Um, Platform boots. Yeah, oh, I had some sick plats. I loved them. Yeah, yeah. they were great. And makeup, mm-hmm. you know, uh, big hair. And uh, and this is in two thousand. Yeah, the this early is in two thousand. And the mm-hmm. guitars were all tuned down to B, right? Okay. So they're tuned down. I guess if you're going down, you'd call that. Well, normally you just have a seven-string guitar, right? Yeah, but, our, but our instruments were just—it was just. There were six strings, but they were essentially the the lower exactly. the six of a seven-string. Exactly. Okay. Uh, basically, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, so they gave us extra heaviness, and it was all very hard rock slash metal mm-hmm. kind of songs with big four-part uh, harmonies on the choruses and such. You know, yeah. it's very pop rock glam, and it was a lot of fun. And our very first show, uh, we had a lot of fans, a lot of critics. Mm-hmm. You know, who thought we were ridiculous, but a lot of people really enjoyed our first show because coupled with the crazy outfits and the makeup and such, we also had a light show, pyrotechnics and confetti cannons and costume changes. And uh, wow. we, we went for it. Yeah. And, and of course, we're really emoting and jumping around and, and uh, putting mm-hmm. forth a lot of effort in the stage show as well. So you've given me some songs here to, to go with. You know, which one of these was the first one that you really learned? Well, let's see. The one, the song called Going to Hell mm-hmm. uh, was written long before I had met these guys. Mm-hmm. And it had uh, undergone several permutations yeah. until it came to be what it is now. You know, after, up until about Somewhere around 2005 or six, uh, we retooled Franz Mantra, Goodbye Glam Rock, Hello Modern Rock, and we started doing the Red Carpet Rats thing, which is radio-friendly commercial mm-hmm. rock music, and that's about, and that's when Going to Hell became what you're about to hear. Okay, here we go.
So how many times in your life do you think you played that song? Mm, I'd say one or two hundred times. Somewhere between, let's say 150, 200. <laughs> I mean, you, you used to tell me about how you would practice with these guys like relentlessly. Yeah, we uh, especially when we first started. You know, we would we would hit the gym in the mornings, mm-hmm. right? Because we were we were all really fit. Uh, we'd hit the gyms in the morning, then uh, work our day jobs, and then uh, you know, and we'd started waiting tables. So we'd get off work at about 11:30, and often we wouldn't eat, and we'd go straight to the rehearsal room and start rehearsing for three plus hours, and then get something to eat and go to bed or whatever. You yeah. Know? So yeah, it was, it was every day. Yes, every day. We did that every day. Seven days a week? Yes. And then in later years, we relaxed it. Yeah. You know, and we did what was needed and maybe more. But, uh, you know, it was always very important to be tight. And you all lived in one house, right? Yes. Um, at first, when we first got together, we all, you know, we, we had our separate uh, apartments. And then we said, you know, w- we need more money. So we need to live together. And that makes communication easier as well. So uh, we all moved into a house uh, together. And we all, all four of us lived together for quite a few years. I'd say maybe five or six years. And then the drummer found uh, his girlfriend who became his wife mm-hmm. uh, had moved in with her after after a couple of yeah and then uh, and then the three of us me and McCabe and Pereira lived together for the rest of the time yeah. we were in Nashville so you were with them like 10 years living 12 together, 12 years well living together for living together 11 years 11 years yeah mm-hmm. so this is I mean you know just this huge part of your life and you probably became really close with these guys right yes living together pursuing the same goal I mean Tell me about, I mean, just the, the, was there a sense of teamwork? Was this like the camaraderie? I mean, how would you characterize, you know, the relationship of this group? Uh, let's see. On a, on a friendship level, uh, we had each other's backs at all times. I never had to worry that I was going to be completely destitute. You mm-hmm. know, I always knew that, you know, we always knew that one or the other would always make sure that everybody else got fed or whatever needed to happen. And on an emotional level, if somebody's having a breakdown or a crisis or something, you know, we'd be there. And that did happen over the course of 12 years, you know. Yeah. And of course, uh, there was a lot of hard work at times, screaming matches followed by empathy sessions that took, you know, like four hours over the course of such a thing. And that would happen often too, you know, and at the end of it, it was better than it was before the beginning of it. So there's a lot of that. And a business relationship, it was very top down. It was uh, uh, McCabe and Pereira kind of uh, uh, dictated how things would go. And then, uh, you know, me and Tig would be good soldiers, basically. So there's like a chain of command. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and then in the personal relationships, I mean, did it ever kind of get where there'd be certain people that would talk to each other to sort of deal with whatever they were dealing with with the other people, right? Like you might have one person that it's easier for you to sort of try to get work something through with the group rather than the others, or was it just completely egalitarian across the the four of you? That's, it was yeah it was pretty egalitarian in that respect yeah. that you know if I had issue with X then I know I could go to Y or Z pretty interchangeably Pereira and McCabe those two really really tight before they put this band together they had already been making music and playing together for several years so uh, uh, they were already tight and this was kind of their baby to start with and they really relied and leaned heavily on each other more so than me or Tig, who is Bikino but then again they also fought more than <laughs> <laughs> so the two who were the closest were both also the ones that fought yeah, the most uh, yes that's, that's great you know what was it about that dynamic you think that that made it last so long because I'm sure even the idea of living with somebody for 12 years straight, let alone three other somebody's right. Um, Mm -hmm. And keeping that together. That's, I think it's like a lot of relationships, you know, in the beginning you see what it can be and how awesome it can be. You know, Mm -hmm. when you look at all the elements, if I do say so myself, we were four pretty good looking guys. Right. (laughs) And uh, there's a lot of talent there. Uh, The songwriting, these guys were capable of writing some very, very good songs. We're all young enough to make it happen and you put in the hard work and you get up there on stage and you do your thing and you say, wow, that show was amazing. This is really cool. We acquire friends that believe in us. So you have this machine that's moving forward. And then... So you're saying it's the band, but... Yeah. I mean, it it was the... The band and the people around the band. The common cause. Right. You know, yeah, the common cause. We all wanted the Mm -hmm. same thing and we were all willing to work for it. 
you know, and sacrifice. You know, like, do you do you, you have a girlfriend? Great, good for you. Stay home and play house with your girlfriend. You want to be in a band? Get your ass here in this rehearsal room and, and get the work, you know. And that was our attitude. That was the collective attitude. Nothing, you know, the, there's very few things that are more important this band, right? It's not a job, you know, it's family, right? That That's pretty much, that's the only thing that trumped band stuff. You know, if somebody said... We've got an opportunity. There's going to be a photo shoot today at four o'clock. I don't care if you have to work. I don't care if you lose your job. Your ass is going to be there at this photo shoot at four o'clock or the rest of us are going to hand you your ass. And uh, we were very militant like that. Wow. But after a while, you know, you say what, what holds it together and, and another part towards the end, what yeah. holds it together is look how much I've put into this. Look yeah. how much older I am now. Yeah. What can I do now if this doesn't work? I'm so much older. What other options do I have? I've already invested so much into this. When do you pull out of this? You know, it's, yeah. it's kind of like uh, uh, what I think gamblers get like that, right? The sunk cost fallacy. There you go. Yeah. Well, and you've just built your entire world around this band, right? Yeah, no significant other, no uh, no extra spending money. Every extra penny that you have, you've put back into the band. How many holidays have you missed with your family that's estranged now? Things like that that we've all, you know, all the sacrifices that we've made. So, you know, the, the music obviously is, uh, it's very well produced. Uh, it's been run over with a fine tooth comb a million mm -hmm. times. It's been tried out every possible way. You know, you've got this record, which is available on iTunes, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we've got some other songs here. I'd, I'd like to play one of them. What's one that you think you could talk about? Olive, Written in the Scars, Photographic Memory? I like Scars. Okay. Let's listen to Scars real quick. It's 
interesting listening to this music. Tell me, tell me about that song. I mean, tell me, you know, why did you pick that one? Uh, because uh, I come up with the bass line, uh-huh. and uh, it got put in the song, so that made me happy. And uh, the harmonies were fun to sing, and uh, I had some input in the arrangement. So anything that, you know, I get to participate in creatively excites me and makes me enjoy it more. Yeah. And plus, it's a, you know, it's a fun pop rock song to play. So when you guys are writing these songs, there's this engine behind the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, is it always geared towards that sort of commercial success goal? Yes. Every song uh, that Pereira and McCabe write together, mm-hmm. uh, the goal is to make the song as good as that song can possibly be. Is it a hit song? Mm-hmm. Does it sound like a hit song? Could yeah. you conceive of this song being a hit? It gets rewritten and worked over until the answer is yes, that's a hit song. Yeah. That's a, you know, a number one single. That's that's the goal of every single individual song. Even when we were working on, they wanted an up-tempo song to uh, open a show with, something that, uh, you know, many beats per minute, just a really yeah. uh, high-energy show opener. Fast songs aren't always hit songs. Most hit songs are right around 120 beats per minute. So they, they wouldn't let themselves write that song. <laughs> Because it was too fast. It's not a hit yeah. song, right? Uh-huh. So, you know, I get a kick out of that. That's that's amusing to me. So your shows then, I mean, it's basically just a showcase of your hit songs, right? Of and your, every song's a hit song. And every song's a hit song. Yes. And of these songs that are on the record, mm-hmm. how many didn't make it? Uh, I don't want to sound ridiculous, but uh, hundreds. How many of those would make it to like I'd say to shows think, that wouldn't actually get recorded? I think when we were working, uh, we were trying to put together mm-hmm. this record, I think there were maybe 20 or 30 songs in our lap that we were trying to, that we narrowed it down to, and then we kind of cherry-picked from that. And in the 12, 11-year, 12-year period of the band, mm-hmm. uh, at what point did you record the record? That was, I think, 2007 or 8. Okay, so like six or seven years into the project is when you finally get around to making this record. Yes. But but the, the goal is like you're trying to be the hit factory, mm-hmm. right? Like yes. you're, you're getting up to bat with each of these songs and you're swinging and it's got to be a home run. Right. If it's a single or double, toss it in the bin and start <laughs> over, right? Pretty much, yeah. No matter how much you like it. No B-sides. No B-sides. Was this purely from McCabe and uh, Pereira? Was this primarily from them, or was there an entity outside of the band, like management or a label or somebody that was driving uh, that? No, they, they were driving that. Okay. They're the, the songwriters, and it was the impetus that they put upon themselves to be mm-hmm. the best songwriters that they can be, and every song you know, has to be as good as it can possibly be. Lyric and and melodically and and all so was there management you you talked a little bit earlier about Mm -hmm. the the machine behind the machine but i mean you know what was involved uh well we we courted uh some management Mm -hmm. uh, a time or two uh but the thing is until we had something to manage some you know yeah then there was no real point in getting management at one time Pereira and mccabe created a label which and then signed the band to that label and we ran the label out of our house. We had somebody that we hired to run the label and we had a couple of interns working for us as well. And at that time, we considered the person that we hired to run and manage and operate the label. She, uh, her name is Donna. Donna could conceivably, you know, have been called our manager. And when we did our last tour in the uh, in the Caribbean, Donna was managing everything. Mm-hmm. Were there other bands on the label? At one time, there might have been. Uh, McCabe was uh, checking out some acts and had a couple of people that he wanted to record and had songs for, uh, but it uh, none, none of it happened. I think we had uh, a rap act and a country act or something like that that he thought were good and viable that he wanted to produce and, and uh, write for. And uh, I believe it, it could have been possible. It seems like then that, you know, a lot of this was just done in-house, right? Yes. I mean, you mm-hmm. would hire... The things that you needed. You talked about doing a mu- music video, and we can we can talk about that. But in this 11, 12 years, mm-hmm. I mean, how far did it go? Well, let's see. We had we had signed with uh, two different indie labels in the mm-hmm. in that 12 years, and we also one of our best shots was when we were working with Michael Wagner, who um, produced, engineered, and mastered groups like Metallica. He mixed mm-hmm. the Master of Puppets album. You know, we did a, a, a record with him. We did three or four. We did four songs with with Wags, as we called him. And, uh, you know, we thought that he would get behind us and take those songs to his friends and his contacts and because he produced it, right? So if yeah. he... if we're successful, he's going to be successful, but nothing came of that. Yeah. Yeah. It rarely happens that way. No. 
So in terms of the tours, the gigs, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we we had courted with lots of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we uh, showcases. We did showcases for lots of people, like mm-hmm. uh, Phil Collins, the producer. You know, came to our house and we kind of showcased for him in our yeah. living room. And uh, we had we had everything in the living room dialed in. You know, our drummer had an electronic kit and we could play at a low enough volume and we could sing our four part harmonies uh, loud enough to be heard without any amplification. Mm-hmm. Right, and we had it dialed in, and he'd he'd never experienced that before. We blew his mind, mm-hmm. but he passed on us because he was looking for something heavier, and we were we were not that heavy. It was pop rock, but that was pretty cool. He produced a lot of Rush albums, you mm. know, and and other stuff. So that was cool. So we've met a lot of you know I could drop names. We met a sure. lot of people like that in Nashville, label heads, and we were flown to L.A. to showcase for some uh, some moneyed peoples who were mm-hmm. interested in getting behind us. But everybody wants a lot for very little. And so who knows, maybe if we were willing to give away some more than what we were actually willing to give away, something could have gone forward a little bit, but you know, you'll never know. It sounds like with the amount that you guys were investing though, that like what you're talking about of that tight knit, you know, if you don't show up to this, you're going to this and that and whatever, it seems like it would have been really hard for you guys to kind of give away any of that control that would be required to sort of hand your hand over the keys, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, but I think too that, you know, uh, you got to do that at least on your first record, unless yeah. you're just. Some folks can get away with having complete um, creative control isn't that big of an issue uh, because basically that record is done, it's in the can. I could see remixing it, mm-hmm. but. Or if somebody wanted to pay to have it re-recorded, that's fine too. If you're going to cough up the money, we would do that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think a lot of it came to people that wanted to get involved, wanted a big piece of the monetary pie. You know, and it was bigger than what we felt like they deserved for just showing up after all the hard work is done and then want a big old slice. You know, but maybe could, that's, could they have made the pie big enough that right, right, that yeah. you know what's left over would have been plenty. Who knows? Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah. uh, you got to be. You know, I think you got to. Sometimes you got to be willing to give up something, you know, a lot of something, even if it's not fair. So do you think, I mean, would you have preferred that it go that way at the time? Like, were you pushing that for at the time? And There were lots of incidents like that. And uh, a lot of times the right thing to do was to pass on yeah. a lot of that because in Nashville, I'm going to mm-hmm. bag on Nashville just a little bit, okay. but there's a lot of small fish that want to strut around like they're big fish and they're not. Yeah. And they promise you a lot and they claim that they can do so much and put your music in so many places and get you seen and heard by this person and that person. And you say, okay, here, run with it. What can you do? Uh, I don't know. You know, and there's they, a lot of that everywhere, though. I, I I've run into that a lot too here. I, I mean, it's it's a industry built around making yourself seem larger than life, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's you know. Uh, so the right thing to do with a lot of times was yeah. absolutely to pass. But there were a couple of situations that if we had to do it over again, maybe we would have chose to to give something away, to give more yeah. away. You know. Was there like internal tor- turmoil and struggle between the four of you on what to do in those situations? <sighs> Not so much, not really. And I'm not saying that to, yeah. to start a you know no. like like a, a I, fight or anything. I'm just you know you know you know in, in my personal ignorance, you mm-hmm. know, I don't know when the right thing to do is. You know, should we take this deal? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, maybe I would like to have taken the deal and seen what happens. But I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it was the right thing to do or not. So I didn't take a firm stance. You mm-hmm. know, I didn't make a stand and make an issue, a huge issue out of something um, and fight about it yeah. because, you know, I just I just don't know. So I'm not going to take a stand on from ignorance. Were you guys, would you guys ever struggle with it? Just at least from a standpoint of... Oh, just, sure. Yeah. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Pros and cons. All uh-huh. that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. The list, yeah. you know. And we'd argue, debate, and talk about it for hours and hours and hours and go round and round and round mm-hmm. on the same thing. Yeah. And at the end of it, I don't know what we decided, if it was good or bad. And what he said and what he might have said and what he meant by saying that. Mm-hmm. What was he really can trying you, to say? Can you even yeah. trust what he's saying? Right. <laughs> so, so, all right. So, this, this 12-year-long ride, I mean, what would you think, like, your fondest memory, like of that entire period like if if you could only rem- like <laughs> you're losing your mind and there's the one thing that you're going to hold on to from all that 
you know, what would it be? Let's see. Um, I think the uh, the first show that we ever played, we uh, we marketed that show for uh, months in advance, mm-hmm. and we had a huge crowd in the room, uh, and we went up there, you know, really did our best, and we won so many people over at that show that years later, even after we'd stopped being Franz Mantra and became Red Carpet Rats, people would recognize me in Nashville and come up and start talking to me about that show. You know, because like I said, it was uh, it was a glam rock extravaganza, and I do really wish that uh, we had stuck to our guns on that and just refined and shortened the songs and made them more. Uh, you thought it was better as glam rock? Yeah, I thought it was better as glam rock because it was it was offering you something that nobody else was doing. Yeah. Very few other people were doing. I mean, the the quality of the songs were there, the musicianship was there, and we were all very good performers. Uh, you know, but you had all the flash and the pizzazz going on as well. We could strip it all down to acoustic guitars and four voices and kill it, you know, and sell it. But we can also get up on a stage with lights and confetti cannons and, uh, you know, makeup and platform boots and bell bottoms and, you know, kick it into high gear and make it a real glam rock, high powered show. I didn't really realize this at the time, you know, but, but looking back on it, I mean, there's something about that glam rock, the makeup, the costumes, the spectacle that is just so much more fun than a lot of the music in the, the 2000s, I guess you'd call that the hard rock music. I mean, hard rock got really, especially at the end of the 90s and right into the early 2000s, it got really, really stagnant. And Look at my angst. And, and you know, I mean, I, I was into emo when it was huge and everything, but there was something about seeing four guys that were basically just like, you know, badass dudes who, mm-hmm. you know, might be super muscly and ripped. Trope. Yeah, it, it totally became a trope, you know, and I think the one band out of that that really like has come to epitomize that for me, and it's the one that uh, always gets made fun of, is uh, uh, not Coldplay, but um, the name of the group, name of the group, Nickelback. Nickelback. <laughs> ah. I, go- I googled band that everyone hates. <laughs> First result. Look at this. Look yeah. at this. You can't even make that up. <laughs> Google That's has. Hysterical. They're literally yeah. the definition of the band that everybody hates. Yeah. But I tell you, it's that's a neat band in that they when their first album they had mm-hmm. one one good song on it, or maybe even it was their second album where they had a good song, and then just each album got a little better and a little better, and then they had their big breakout hit album, mm-hmm. and then Mutt Lang got a hold of them and turned them into Shania Twang, <laughs> Twain. But uh, yeah. yeah, they have. There's one song on that uh, Mutt Lang produced album that sounds exactly like a Shania Twain song. It's hilarious to me. <laughs> There's something about that glam rock. Um, you, you were saying that you made a you made a video. Yes. That was photograph. Photographic memory. Photographic um, memory. Not the Def Leppard song. No, we've we've shot lots of videos. We probably mm-hmm. got probably all in all there might be twelve, no, not twelve, twenty like twenty plus videos out there mm-hmm. that we've shot different songs, different times and points in the in the career of the band. But uh, this one is by far the best. We have a, a friend of ours. He, he became enamored with us, and mm-hmm. uh, McCabe made a strong friendship with this guy who is a very, very talented videographer, and uh, he's he's done lots of videos. He's the one. Do you remember that loony, crazy, uh, I don't know what she is, Senator, the, the I am not a witch person? Remember that? No. I am not a witch. She said that first on the Bill Maher show. What's her name? Christine O'Donnell. Christine, is it Christine O'Donnell? Yeah, with her featuring her declaring, I'm not a witch. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, And she was, you know, she's a, um, she was running for some Republican office mm-hmm. at the time, you know. Yeah. She's you're loony, right? Yep. And she'd said something about dabbling in witchcraft at on Bill Maher's show. Yeah. And he brought that up to tease her about it, right? Uh-huh. Well, she went, she created a video, and uh-huh. the first line, if I'm not mistaken, like the first line of this video that she did, you know, like a public service announcement is... I am not a witch. <laughs> right? Just in case you thought she was casting spells. Just in case. Right? But he he, he shot that, you know. <laughs> uh, so, so he's worked, you know, with lots of people. Extremely talented, and uh, he had an idea, a very dark idea for the, mm-hmm. for the video, photographic video, uh, photographic memory video. His concept was that uh, he's going to take the lyrics of the song and narrate the story where this couple have a fight uh, or they break up or something, and the girl leaves and she is murdered, and the coroner's photograph of her is the last image that her boyfriend ever sees of her, right? And that's the photographic memory 
that he has is burned into his mind. It's the last time he'll ever see her is that that image or whatever, you know. Uh, and he took it to a really dark place, and we thought, wow, that's rock as fuck. That's cool, you know. Let's uh, yeah. yeah, let's do that. So. Um, he did that, and then uh, we all bought stuff. And you know, my job was to get all the frames. So I mm -hmm. went on eBay and and antique houses and all these places and corralled all these mm -hmm. antique frames that we could hang for the for the photo shoot. Prera got this girl to be the girlfriend in the shot. She's uh, she was on Next Top Model or something mm -hmm. like that. A uh, really pretty girl. And uh, what else? Uh, the car and the creepy guy. That's our friend Jeff, Big Jeff. You know, it was the coolest car, so we had to have that car. We we put it all together. Together, and he and his crew came out there and shot it and it's like a million dollar video that we got for you know hundreds mm -hmm. basically and you know of course it was a lot of hard work a whole lot of hard work and you know put it together but uh jeff is his name i remember his name jeff and uh he did a really amazing job with it well let's uh you and i'll watch it uh, I'll put a link <laughs> okay. in the podcast where other people can watch it and the the podcast listeners will listen to it so let's Check this out. Didn't slap on the camera, never counted to three, but you left me something as you were leaving me. A vision in my mind of you walking away, worth a thousand words I never got to say. It's dark. Isn't it dark? It's dark. That's rock. So, what other bands did you play with? 
you, you were in Nashville, mm-hmm. you know, you were working your way up, you were there for 12 years, you went on some tours, mm-hmm. you know. Did you co-tour with any other bands? No, 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 it was just us. So you'd set up the tour and play these other shows, there'd be openers that were the promoters that handle, or... Let's see, I don't think we ever had any openers. Uh, we did two, basically two tours, kind of like a mm-hmm. uh, Southeast tour. And then the tour in the Caribbean was basically the only two tours that we had. Other than that, when we would play out, it would just be around the greater Nashville mm-hmm. area. So what was the tour in the Caribbean like? Uh, that was rough. That was that was a tough tour uh, because we had no money. So uh, I was hungry a lot, as were many of us. You're in the middle of... It, it's beautiful, right? It's gorgeous. You're in the Caribbean. Weather's great. Drinks are cheap. Mm-hmm. I mean, cheaper than water, you know, and uh, there's beach and sand and stuff. But if you want to go hiking and swimming and stuff, guess what? That's going to make you hungry and thirsty, mm-hmm. right? You ain't got no money for no water and food, you know, so mm-hmm. you don't do those things. So that was kind of tough. Later in the tour, we hooked up with some uh, some girls that became fans of ours. They were very smart and fun, and they had uh, very good ideas about how to set up a merch table. And once they got involved, it turned our crap around, and we started selling T-shirts like crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, not enough to make up for the money that we were losing uh, <laughs> and had lost, but it, it was enough to, to where I could have Pop-Tarts for breakfast, you know, and that was awesome. So, uh, yeah. What was the thought process behind go- doing a tour in the Caribbean? I mean... It- well, it started off... Uh, McCabe and Pereira were working out some sort of deal with somebody in Nashville who was putting together a tour for us in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. It started going sour, so they said, screw it, we can do this ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the idea, we had uh, a couple of people, we had at least one person with us, working with us at time, one of our interns, who was also a videographer. And we, they had the idea to make this tour into a reality show. And there's even, the Kickstarter is still up to fund this reality <laughs> it show. It never got funded. It never got funded. <laughs> and somebody who does it does you know Kickstarter promotions for a living. She said, "You want me to tell you what you did wrong?" I said, "Sure." So she looked at it and she said, "It's too perfect. It looks done. It looks like a complete project. It doesn't look like you need anybody's help." You know, <laughs> and that's because we nitpick the crap out of everything yeah. and gloss it over, just like you mentioned about the tunes, right? Yeah. Fine tooth comb, fine tooth comb the the you know the Kickstarter video, yeah. and it's a really good looking video. You know, so that, that according to her, that was what was wrong with it. So uh, we convinced McCabe, convinced uh, these restaurateurs and uh, the owners of these venues to feed us uh, mm-hmm. for free and then pay us to do a show. And then we'd video the whole thing and then put that in our TV show, you know, in our serial TV show. So that was kind of like our formula. You know, we'd go somewhere, we'd interview people, they would feed us, and, uh, you know, some of these meals were just phenomenal. So, mm-hmm. you knew, even if you were starving, you knew you were probably going to eat least, at least once that day, and probably really well, you know, mm. so that was cool. But so, I mean, this was, it was all geared around the reality show? Well, you, I tried to pin that down, you know. I think the idea originally was to tour, and I'm, I can't recall where the idea for a reality show got thrown into the mix. But, you know, I didn't have much faith in the reality show uh, coming off as a reality show because mm-hmm. the, you know, Pereira the singer is so private, and McCabe is too, that, you know, as soon as things started getting real, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like in the real world, Right, like that show. When things started getting real, cameras went off. Yeah, immediately. Like, you turned off right yeah. as it was getting good. Right. Right. <laughs> as soon as as soon as any kind of fight or static or anything or issue come, cameras off. Yeah. Right. But they still wanted to push the idea of a reality show, and that really frustrated the videographers because they're like. Uh, what can we work with? You know, yeah. if there's no human element, if there's no drama, if there's no fighting, it kind of... Yeah, I, I mean, there's a reason why reality shows fake most of what's going yes. on, because real life can be kind of boring. Yes. Right, unless you really get into that, that nitty-gritty. So as you were doing it then, what mm-hmm. was the thought? Was just this tour is going to do X? Like, Oh, well, the idea was we were going to make so much money right from uh, from all the shows that we were going to do and we did and uh, but you said the, you were losing money oh yes we were losing tons of money uh, as a matter of fact the day after we got back our power was shut off <laughs> we're like and, and, and so this is the middle of February as I recall 
was it February? I think it was in Nashville. Yeah, February in Nashville, and uh, the power gets shut off the next day. You know, we were just in the Caribbean too, so we're nice and we're acclimated to eighty degree <laughs> weather. Out of the so, sauna into and, the, uh, the ice bath. Yeah, and then and then my family was doing a thing mm-hmm. right um, in North Carolina that it was very important for me to be a part of. Right, and I had to hawk two of my I had to hawk uh, my fretless bass and my classical guitar to get up a couple hundred bucks so I could have gas money to go down there and do stuff. And I almost didn't make it back home. I had no funds whatsoever from any source. I had $10 on a Walmart card. For some reason, you know how grandpas do on your your Uh birthday or Christmas. This is after Christmas, right? And first time I had a chance to see him and he gives me this, you know, Christmas card with a $10. Here I am, you know, 40-year-old man or whatever, and he's giving me a a Walmart (laughs) gift card for $10. And And it actually is really like... (laughs) I really, really needed it. So I, uh, you know, I stopped at a Walmart on the way home and I, they wouldn't let me buy or get it turned it into cash or anything. And then I, f- I found out there's a Walmart that has a gas station where I could use my Walmart gas card. So somehow I had just enough gasoline vapor in the tank to get me to that Walmart where I could sit there for a couple of hours until 6 a.m. in the morning when the gas pumps were turned on and then I could get my $10 of gas in the tank. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how broke we were when we got back from the Caribbean. So it's it's safe to say that the the goal of making a ton of money on tour, <laughs> it didn't work out that way. Not not that instance. No, no, not not that particular time. So this was a little later in the bands. This is yeah. This is the end. Yeah. The end. That was the end. Yeah. That was the end. Well, that was the last tour and the last. Uh, we had a show after that that uh, M- McCabe and Prera. I guess all of us, McCabe and Prera, made some contacts with this wealthy guy who lives in New York, mm-hmm. and he really liked us, and he wanted pl- us to play his Fourth of July show, uh, which we did. And uh, of course, all the money that he gave us to go out there, fly out there, and get paid for the show, that was all spent right in the Caribbean, because you know, there's all the. You're in the hole. Yeah, oh, we were in the hole, right? Yeah, credit cards maxed out. Oh yeah, all yeah. that. Yeah, I had a. You know, I had a $600 cell phone bill that I'd already paid it down several hundred dollars. It's complicated, but uh, I was paying basically everything I that was given to me, you know, for any kind of compensation out Mm -hmm. of this whole thing. I used that to pay down my cell phone because my plan was the only one that worked in the Caribbean. Right, so my phone was the only one that was used to call back home. And so you got else. hit with like the tons, yeah, the brunt yeah. of the oh yeah. yeah. So you know, and what I lost wasn't anywhere near what uh, uh, yeah. McCabe he had thousands of dollars on his credit card that he had to pay off. So it was it was pretty tough on all of us. We all lost quite a bit of money. So, so. was was the, that tour like what started things? I think breaking so. Up? Well, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, because, you know, we we basically shot our wad. We had no, you know, money fuels things that you need to do. Yep. And without money, what what are you going to do? What are you going to promote? What are you going to, you know, you're going to create something? It, you know, you're going to record without money, you know. Yeah. So we had no, no financial fuel behind us, you know, at the end. And we had, uh, there was nothing going on. There were no gigs, no shows booked. No photo, like we needed another photo shoot. We didn't do have any photo shoots, <laughs> but we we shot a lot of photos. And uh, you know, I have a friend in California who is a friend of mine that I met while waiting tables. See, the whole, mm-hmm. almost the entire twelve years, we all waited tables because it's a it's a stereotype, it's a trope, but it's true. It's one of the best ways to put cash in your pocket when you're a struggling artist of some sort. So um, you know, I'd met my friend Jess waiting tables, and he uh, moved back home to California. And and he's been working in my ear for a couple of years saying, dude, come out here, move, move, move out here with me and we'll do this and we'll have fun and I'll take you to these things and we'll do this stuff and it'll be great. Um, and I had flown out to San Francisco several times to visit and had a, had a great time every time. You know, one thing that had been very important to me for the longest time is getting the hell out of the South. I mean, I'm from the South. I like the South. It's a great place to visit, but I don't want to live there yeah. unless it's, you know, maybe the mountains or something um, in North Carolina. I could live in the mountains, Boone or Asheville or something like that. But even now, they're still trying. Uh, the legislature in North Carolina is still trying to destroy my, my state. So, uh, yeah, it's because of stuff like that, though. I've been trying to get out of the South forever. So I told the guys, look, um, there's really nothing going on. So I want to move to uh, San Francisco. 
I, there's no reason for, you know, I can do nothing in San Francisco just as easily as I can do nothing in Nashville. And if you need me, if we get something going on, I can come back, if we get a tour, I'll come back do a tour. If we're going to do some recording, I'll come back and yeah. record with you. If something happens, I can be available. So, so from the tour to the time you move, how much time passes? Uh, let's see. That would have been about six or eight months. Six or eight months. Yeah. yeah. So that one show, and then I think, I don't know, there might have been some other little things here and there. So were you the one who left? I mean... I believe so, yeah. And it's not like the band didn't so much break up as it just kind of fizzled. Yeah. You know? Just I kinda... mean, they didn't find another bass player. No. They no. No, they didn't find another bass player. They, you know, we stayed in touch. They never uh, asked me to... Are they still playing? They still do stuff. Yeah. Uh, the drummer, uh, Tig, he never stopped playing. He's been playing with bands pretty much nonstop. The other guys, like Pereira's done all kinds of stuff. Pereira, he toured with the Broadway production of... What's it called? Oh, it's the Def Leppard song. Yes. Rock of Ages. And uh, so he toured with that for like a year, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, was really good what at it. What part was he? Stacy Jacks. Okay, yeah. The character yeah. with the largest ego. The Tom Cruise character, Yes, right? the Tom yeah. Cruise character. Okay. Uh, and he killed it. He was great. He uh, he got tickets for uh, me and uh, Didn't Jess. he come out when we were, when I was living with you? Yes, he did. That's right. I met him. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, of course, we went to the show and uh, he played all over the United States. And then I think sometime after he did that, after he left the Rock of Ages, he was hosting, uh, he was one of the hosts on a TV show on the Golf Channel. The golf right. channel? The golf channel. Uh -huh. And right now he is writing... Who is he writing for? He's writing for uh, a TV show, I believe. He's writing for a network, a, mm -hmm. a TV network. Yeah. Right now, I believe, is what he's doing. And still writing lyrics and songs and stuff. And he and McCabe, I believe, are still writing together. McCabe is still playing and writing songs and still still song plugging and such. So they're still plugging away and you moved out here and mm -hmm. that's just basically it. That's basically it. And my bass sat in the corner. I left it out on purpose. <laughs> and you know, I hardly touched that thing for years. Yeah. It just collected dust. Because every time I pick it up, I'm like, ugh, work. <laughs> Drudgery. <laughs> work. Well, I mean, it's funny that like that. That's where that band left you with that for a while, right? Like the. Yeah. I mean, it really. It, it was. It was. It was more than a job for you. I mean, it was your life. Yes. So coming out of all that, you know, uh, and, and this could be a tough question, but I mean, mm -hmm. do you have any regrets about that experience? Yeah, I do. I regret that I didn't stand up for myself more, yeah. and uh, try to have more of an input. Mm -hmm. You know, but uh, unfortunately, I'm I'm one of those non-confrontational types, you know, yeah. and I'll just suck it up and push on, suck it up and push on, you know. And I do kind of wish that I had seen the writing on the wall a little earlier, you know, because I think there were some patterns that we were in, patterns that we were doing that I knew were going to continue. And these were kind of patterns that keep you stagnant, you know, patterns that were perhaps destructive. And I wish I had seen that and said, you know, I should, I've given this five, six years. Maybe I should cut my losses and go on, you know. Uh, being in the band, I learned a lot of lessons about being accountable, being responsible. When you say you're going to get something done, you get it done. I mean, it sounds like your work ethic from the band was yes. just impeccable. And that's something I've always known about you, hmm. uh, is you don't do anything half-assed, really. No. No. And, uh, you know, I was a little flaky around the edges when I first started the band. I was kind of lackadaisical. That shit ended quick. Let me tell you that. And that was good for me. So a lot of it was good for me. And also how to play in a sparsely instrumental, instrumented band, you know, where you just have drums, bass, and one guitar, you know, how not to be so staccato with the notes. Mm -hmm. You got to fill up all that space, right? right? So I got a lot better at that. But then I lost a lot of my bass playing technique because, uh, you know, our songs, most of what I do is just plugging eighth notes. So, uh, you know, all the, you know, fun prog lines and, and walking bass lines and things like that. There was, wasn't really room for that in what we did. And I didn't, I didn't keep up with it. So, you know, yeah. and, I, I, and there was kind of a standing marching order that we were not allowed to jam or play with other people for fear that, that everybody is out there to take what we have and pull it apart and use it for themselves. Wow. You know, very territorial. Very, yes. Yeah. So nobody play with anybody else ever, hmm. right? So if I'm not playing with anybody else, I'm not playing other kinds of music or jamming. So yeah. I, I kind of let myself stagnate. So I lost a lot of technique okay. you know? when you think of doc 
before the band mm-hmm. and Doc after the band. Coming off of that tour from South Korea and who you were as a person, what were some of the the most surprising changes you th- you think looking back? A lot of it, a lot of character building, basically, uh, for me, uh, mm-hmm. like like the work ethic, and I can see uh, I've probably become a little better reader of other people's emotional states. I've also learned that with determination and focus, I'm very careful about what I commit to. Yeah. Because if I say I'm going to do something, well, I've got to do it right and I've got to yeah. do it. So, uh, you know, and that's if I'm going to start a relationship with somebody, you know, like a romantic mm-hmm. relationship, then, you know, if I say I'm going to do this with you, we're going to yeah. do this relationship, it's on. Just selective with my time. <laughs> yeah. So these these other three people, they're, they're some of the most influential people in your life probably, right? They've influenced me quite a bit, yes. And I'll tell you, Pereira, uh, he's the one that w- that amazes me the most, where when I first met him, he was truthfully one of the most angry and bitter and self-centered people I'd ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. Today, I don't know, it, 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 it didn't happen overnight, but over the course of about a year or so, he flipped that upside down and became one of the most remarkable, down-to-earth, perceptive people who can get inside your head and talk you down and Mm -hmm. extremely diplomatic where any normal average person would have lost their temper and stormed out or blown up and not to mention where he was years before now Mm -hmm. he's that person that can let that blow right over and get to the heart of the problem you know if you ran into any of these guys on the street like just by chance what would that reunion be like? Um, my guitar player is getting married next year, and I'm I'm going to be one of the ushers at the wedding, so I'm going to be flying to Nashville for that. And I think we're actually going to play. I've got to bring my bass. You're going to play a show? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna play at the wedding. Screw that. He's got a bass. I'll use his bass. I'm not. <laughs> I'm going to fly with my bass. Doc, thanks for uh, spending this time with me. Yeah, hey, uh, I skipped the gym for this. You skipped the. G- oh man, you must really. <laughs> All right. Well, here you go. Uh, I've been chatting with Doc from Red Carpet Rats. And this is their song, I'll Live. How many nights were you in my bed with someone?
Broken Up.